Do you feel like you're barely keeping your head above water? That no matter how hard you try, meaningful progress remains out of reach? Heather gets that. She battled an eating disorder for years before seeking help. Now in recovery, Heather is here to tell you that positive change is possible even when it doesn't feel that way. Join her as she shares openly about her struggles and small triumphs. Fair warning, though. Heather doesn't hold back. Her candid story may trigger some. But for those wanting honesty, hope, and healing, this is 1% Better with Heather. The information and stories shared on 1% Better are based on host Heather's personal experiences with eating disorders and mental health challenges. Heather is not a licensed doctor, therapist, dietitian, or other health professional. Her advice and opinions should not be taken as professional medical advice. Please consult your physician or a qualified health provider regarding any medical or health-related issues. 1% Better also contains descriptions of eating disorders that may be triggering for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Hey there, my little gaffers, and welcome to 1% Better with Heather. Today, I have a special guest, Ed Warrior Mom, as she's known on TikTok. For the next couple episodes, Ed Warrior Mom will share how she got pulled into this eating disorder hell. No questions off limits. She will speak about her daughter and their experience with the eating disorder recovery system, how this disease affected her family. She will also be discussing her faith in a higher power and how that helped her get through this eating disorder hell. It takes a brave person to come onto a worldwide podcast and air your dirty laundry, so to speak. I applaud her for this. Now, without any further ado, here is Ed Warrior Mom. Hey there, my little gaffers. Welcome to 1% Better with Heather. I have Ed Warrior Mom here with me today as my special guest. That's how she's known on TikTok. Would you like to introduce yourself, Ed Warrior Mom? Hey, everybody. And hey, Heather, thank you for having me on. Um, yes, I'm Edie Warrior Mom on TikTok. My actual name is Kendi, and that's hard for people. So I always introduce myself as um, it's like Wendy, just with a K. And that seems to make some sense to people. So I'm um, just happy to be here and talking about a really important topic. Well, again, I have to thank you to come on a worldwide podcast and air dirty laundry, so to speak. Not a lot of people could do this. So I'm very appreciative that you are here in the community to want to guide and help. Absolutely. So we left off. Your daughter now is going to inpatient? She actually went directly to residential. I think inpatient typically is if you're, you know, medically compromised and they need to stabilize you before you can go into the residential environment. So she, um, you know, didn't need that particular um, time. So residential, just because things are a little, I, I didn't go through any of this. I'm very open mm -hmm. and honest. I just went to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't good. So residential's like, lack of a better word, like a recovery house, right? 
Yep. Um, there's various different facilities. They, you know, maybe look more medical versus, you know, a, a home environment. Uh, she went to a very large treatment center that um, did have much more of a medical kind of feel to it. And um, again, we got there only because of the recommendation of her dietitian. Now, we live in an area that has one kind of reputable uh, treatment program and about an hour and a half away. So not close, but um, they would not take our insurance. And so we ended up at a program about three hours from where we live. And, you know, that was that was a hard decision to make just in and of itself with a 17 year old who is not used to being away from home um, and just thinking about what that's going to look like over a long period of time. But we're glad we went there. It um, was a very comprehensive program. And, you know, all treatment programs have their problems. But I was very happy with and impressed with the kind of care that she received. She was there for nine weeks. And at the end of nine weeks, and I know you've talked about this with um, another guest, but at the end of nine weeks, they tend to step them down to a day only program and it's called partial hospitalization. And the challenge for us being three hours away is that, um, you know, she would have to have somewhere to sleep at night. And so I moved to that city three hours away and left the rest of the family for another six weeks to live with her there so that she could go to the day program and then come, you know, to an Airbnb with me and sleep there at night. So when you think about sort of the difficulty and the challenge of putting your child in a long-term program like this, you don't also think about the many challenges um, that come along with it. So a total of 13 or 14 weeks, and then, you know, she came back home um, with the family and I came back home <laughs> with the family. So you're three hours away, your 17-year-old daughter's in a place. So is it with, is it all girls? Is there like, mm -hmm. like how, how many people are in this residential? Is it with dietitians, doctors? It's around the clock care. Does she get a cell phone? Like what, what are the terms with this one? So... It's around the clock care, uh, dietitian, therapist, psychiatrist, medical doctor, nurses available 24 hours, other staff to support, you know, all of the, the activities. Uh, there were probably, there were multiple kind of units, uh, but I think in each unit there were maybe 10 to 15 girls. And, you know, in the adolescent area, you could have anywhere from, you know, 10 years old up to, um, you know, almost 18. There was one girl I remember that turned 18 while she was there and then had to be transferred to the adult area um, because, you know, something magic happens when you turn 18. Um, and she did have access to her cell phone during 
periods of time in the evening. So, you know, she would do school during the day, do groups, um, meet with her, you know, treatment team, all of the things that you would expect in this sort of intensive program. And then in the evenings, she could call us every night um, during a certain amount of time. And then there was a weekly visitation. I think when she was in treatment this time, we, it was right, another COVID spike was happening. And so they did away with in-person visitation. So we were lucky in that we got to visit her right at the beginning, but for probably the next seven weeks, we couldn't visit in person. So let's just go back a little bit. What year is this? Like what, what is going on and what, like what month? This is 2021. And she admitted in October, so at the very end of the first semester of her senior year. And then she came home at the end of February of, you know, the spring semester of her senior year and then finished her senior year online. So let's, let me ask this. So now she's spending Christmas in a treatment center. It was awful. I can't think of something more horrible to do. So how does that look like? Like, how are the phone calls? Is she emotional? Is she begging to come home? Is she trying to figure out how to escape out of there? <laughs> what? I think she actually handled it very well. Um, the begging to come home happened at the very beginning. Um, and as time went on, I think it became a routine that she was used to. She certainly didn't like it, but she was able to reconcile that okay in her brain. When it came to Christmas, it was just really sad for all of us. They did let us come and visit on Christmas. So that particular holiday was, you know, very, it revolved around traveling there and visiting her. We brought gifts and did all of that with her there. So I was thankful that we had that opportunity. Um, it made it a little less challenging, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the funnest Christmas I've ever had, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so how do I word this? You're three hours away. You can't just go down there and give her coffee whenever or say hey right were you in and i've just learned this from talking from other people in like a what, what do you want to call it like a open room when you're having christmas is it just you and your family or is it everybody's family and everyone's having christmas together in one particular room no, um, they stagger visitation so that, you know, your family can have time together. I think standard visitation, they only allow two people in at a time. So that was always kind of challenging. We have a big family. So it's like, who's going to go in with whom for how many time? And then how do you switch off and all of those things. But in that particular visitation, um, it was just it was just us. And it was a nice time. We had we brought a game so we were able to play that so it, it you know it was um we made lemonade out of lemons 
So while she's there, are you getting reports from doctors, dietitians, psychologists, whoever she's talking to you? Are you constantly updated? Or do you feel like you're getting bits and pieces of information? No, I think particularly in the adolescent program, the parent communication was extremely good, um, almost too much. <laughs> you know, I, I have a full time job and I feel like every day there was something that somebody needed to have a little quick call about or, you know, give us an update on. And certainly I wanted to do all of those things um, and appreciated the openness and, um, you know, the lines of communication there. So I was really happy with that. And I think they brought us into a lot of decisions about weight restoration and all of those things that are critical to the treatment process and design. And certainly we had family therapy. Uh, so I do think that families are really uh, central to the way adolescent programs tend to work. And for us, that was really positive. Um, I know not every family, um, you know, operates in the same way. And there's, there's multiple, you know, families at play, not just in, you know, the nuclear family and those kinds of things that tend to be challenging. But for us, I, I think it was a relatively good experience. And I'm grateful that they offered it. So if you don't mind me asking, you have a husband, you have other kids. What, what are they, what's that drive for three hour conversation going to go see your daughter? Like, are you prepping your other kids saying, okay, you can't say this, can't say that. Don't upset her. Like, what's that Ab like? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of, one of the things that I think about a lot is just how our family has been affected by all of this in some good and bad ways. But to directly answer your question, yes, uh, we spent a lot of time, my boys, um, two, two boys, um, they're 16 and 10 now, but they were 13 and seven when we first started um, this journey. And we were constantly like, don't say this. Don't act like you want to leave because it's time to go eat dinner. Like we need to be present and, you know, talking with her and um, acting like we're, <laughs> we're not, you know, going to go do something else fun when we leave here and just all of the things to try to make um, her feel good in a really tough situation. And they did great. Um, I'm really proud of my boys for, you know, being in it with all of us. I wouldn't wish that on anybody else, but I'm proud of them. So do they understand at this time of their ages, what, what is happening? How's that family conversation going? Like, do they know why their sister isn't living with them anymore? They did. I, I would say early on when my husband and I were the ones, you know, that knew what was happening, we tried to keep as much from them as possible, but kids are perceptive. Um, they probably knew more than we even thought they knew, but 
I do remember, particularly my oldest son, and I sat down with him before we took our daughter to treatment and told him what was going to happen and why it was happening. I felt like he was mature enough to understand. But the other thing was that she was admitting on his birthday. And that felt really terrible to me as a mom, that everything about his birthday was going to be about this other really hard thing that was happening. And so, um, you know, I had kind of a dual reason to have that conversation with him, but he was really understanding and helpful in the process. My little one, he kind of just went along for the ride and complained, you know, about everything as small children tend to do. It's only now, I think at 10, that he is asking some questions about what happened and why it happened and, and what it means. And um, it's a little more age appropriate to have that conversation now. And what's, if you don't mind sharing, what's the conversation with you and your husband? Because obviously you're probably not going to talk about it in the car with your other two kids in the car. Like what, how, how are you guys discussing how you're going to navigate Christmas and drive for three hours and then you need to find somewhere to stay and what, how's that all happening? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we just did it. Um, as I, you know, said before, something was really helpful to us to just deal with the problems of the day and manage what we could manage. We got in the very beginning, it's sort of like we got all of the, this isn't how it's supposed to be kinds of things out in the open and process them, I think, emotionally. And so the treatment experience, I think, was just put one foot in front of the other. There are things that we can control. There are things that we can't control. It's really terrible that we're, you know, in this situation, but we're going to do what we need to do and then take what comes next. So your husband, from what I'm hearing, was never in denial. He never said, no, our daughter doesn't have a problem. This is the path we're going to go and we're just going to deal with it. Like he was on board from day one. Yes, I think he actually was more worried about her than I was initially. So there was no denying that there was a problem. I do think that when her dietitian said, I think we need a higher level of care, we both had this moment like, is that really necessary? Like, really necessary. So it did take a while for us. It wasn't, it wasn't until she was in treatment and we were having these conversations and family therapy that we really understood that, you know, what you look like aside, your weight, your vitals, um, really kind of what's going on emotionally was a significant challenge. And we were all in it, you know, wanting to make sure that we were doing what we needed to do to help her feel better, do better, live better, you name it. 
Well, I I still can't get over having Christmas and treatment <laughs> like that. I'm sorry, like that that I give her a lot of credit. Like that's hard. That's hard. We so, did we did have Christmas when she came home. Like we kept oh. all of her gifts. Um, I mean, when we went to visit, we took some gifts, but we had all of the extended family, all of that stuff. We kept our tree up. We did a lot of things um, just to communicate to her that Christmas is whenever you want it to be, however you want it to be. The only thing that matters is that we're here and we're celebrating each other and, you know, um, the spirit of the season. So I guess I want to lead in to this question while she's there at this facility is she alone in a room does she have roommates how's that looking you know um i can't really remember if she had a roommate during her adolescent admission i don't think she did i think she was in a room by herself See, and then I look at it as, man, I wish I had a room by myself. But it's like, <laughs> I didn't. Lonely, yes, very lonely. But from what I hear from other people's experience, and my roommate was not, had nothing to do with an eating disorder. I had a 95-year-old dementia roommate, right? But learning tips and tricks mm -hmm. from these facilities would maybe this one sounds like it's fewer and far between if you're on your own in a room. Well, I think there's plenty of other times and opportunities to be together. I mean, she certainly forged, um, you know, friendships with other uh, patients in both of her treatment stays. And I was thankful for that. I mean, you don't want to go through something like that, feeling isolated and alone. Um, but yeah, there is a very real challenge of managing the competitive nature of eating disorders and latching onto things in that environment that can be hurtful to your treatment versus helpful. And I think the facility does what they can to to manage that and talks about it openly. I mean, there's a lot of self-empowerment and, you know, you were in control of your own. You didn't cause this. Like, it's not your fault that you developed this illness, but it is your responsibility to get better from it. And so I think those messages were not insignificant in the facility. So during all this, she's going to group and seeing a dietitian and psychologist. How's that all tying in for her? Are you getting phone calls? Like, I don't want to talk to these people. Like, uh, yeah, she really disliked her therapist the first go round. And so we heard about that a lot and we got to see it because we came to family therapy, which was um, a little bit of a mixed bag for us. It, I think it was a means to an end. It was important, but it was also very, very, very painful. 
<laughs> at times. And um, she, you know, she had a good relationship with her dietitian and most of the staff, of course, there's always, I mean, you're dealing with kids, right? They're, they're objectionable. They get in trouble for, you know, things that they say. So, you know, I know that there were like a couple of things that we get as parents got this like big serious email about, you know, kids that were causing, you know, a problem with one of the, you know, night staff and trying to prank them. And, you know, from an outside perspective, you're like, Eh, that's kids. But I also know, you know, you got to keep the, got to keep the order in place. And so, um, you know, just a lot of, a lot of rambunctiousness, I think in that environment. Yeah. And I'm laughing cause I'm like, the inmates don't run the prison. And, uh, <laughs> but I can see that like, you're already feeling like you're going insane. You're away from your family if you like you gotta entertain yourself somehow and yep at least at least they had like i guess a good humor about it right like they didn't put everyone on lockdown and solitaire or something yeah i think they you know do what they need to do to strike the right balance and sometimes it's okay and sometimes it <laughs> airs on the side of too much and you know you just take some of the good with the bad i think you know my daughter would say sometimes that what was challenging with being an adolescent is being treated like you don't have any agency um or really any reasonable thoughts or ideas about yourself and that i think kind of came up a lot is feeling like they just treated us like, like, you know, toddlers um, in that situation. And she had the perspective of also receiving treatment as an adult once she turned 18. And so it was such a stark difference in her experience in that regard, in the same treatment program from being an adolescent to being, you know, a few months past the age of 18. So does she keep in contact with any of the people that she met in there? Or is it like, how, how does she feel? Is that chapter closed, done, never don't want to look at it ever again? Or is she okay with talking about it? Yeah, I think she more so in her most recent treatments day, again, as an adult, she has a handful of close friends from that time in her life that, you know, they're on TikTok and on Snapchat and Instagram, all the things that young people do. And they, they talk about um, meeting up and, you know, doing something. They all live in very different parts of the country. So it would be challenging, but I don't think that it's a really it's not something that she really tries to keep at the forefront of her mind. Like I know we'll talk about TikTok at some point, but she doesn't, she's not a part of this recovery community on TikTok because I don't think she wants to get stuck there. Um, you know, she wants to do different things with her life and for her life to be about other things, more productive things, more positive things. 
Well, that I, I'm happy to hear that, that she's doing well. And I really do appreciate you joining me today on the 1% Better podcast. Tell everyone again where they can find you on the TikTok. Okay. Well, I the label is ED Warrior Mom, but the actual handle is wendy.with.a.k. So Wendy with a K with some dots in between, and you'll find me there. Or you can just go to Heather Recovers and look through her followers <laughs> and find me there. There you go. We'll link you to the 1percentbetter.ca yeah, there you go. website. There you go. Thank you very much again for joining us. That's all for this episode of 1% Better. To continue the conversation, head over to our website at www.1percentbetter.ca, where you can access more stories and resources. We'd also love it if you subscribed and left us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, friends, progress takes patience, perspective, and sometimes a little help from people who get it. So be kind to yourself and others as we work to get 1% better every day. We'll see you back here next week.